Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. The Word of God. So a few years back, uh, I was on a um, teaching trip in Africa, and um, while I was there, met some uh, wonderful, wonderful people, and uh, one of them that I uh, really grew to, to love and care for is a, a man named Bishop Bright Combe. So he was a, a bishop. He was over several churches in his region, and um, <clears throat> this this one um, evening we were were walking and talking, and he said, you know, he said, okay, well, you know, I'll I'll take you down. Have you seen the beach yet? No, I haven't seen the beach, and so. So here, here go me and, and Bright, and we're, we're walking down to the beach, and as we're talking, and I know from uh, lunch with John, he's had similar experiences. As we're walking and we're talking, and I'm, I'm walking, I feel a hand come reach next to my hand and clasp my hand uh, in, in a, a, a nice, warm embrace. And Bishop Bright Combe and I are now walking hand in hand, uh, strolling along the, the streets of Mombasa toward the beach. Thankfully, this tall, lanky, white guy from Amarillo uh, was aware from a previous trip that there was no funny business going on, there wasn't anything to be concerned about. Actually, what was happening is I was being shown a gesture of friendship, a gesture of closeness, a gesture of connection that is common among males in certain parts of Africa and the Middle East. See, the most natural thing for Bright to do, based on his culture, in order to show me that we were friends, that there was a level of trust, that there was a level of acceptance, The most natural thing that he could do was to reach down and grab my hand. And not just grab my hand, interdigitate my hand and hold it as we walked together and continued in conversation. But if I hadn't known that beforehand, I probably would have been a little freaked out. The reality is we often don't recognize our own culture, and our own culture's differences until we encounter another culture or someone from another culture. You don't think you have a southern accent until you go to the East Coast or you go overseas, but you do, and they will discover it, and they will tell you about it. We don't often understand the differences in cultures until we encounter someone from another culture or we go visit another culture. And the reason is because much of culture goes without saying. So much of our our, our different cultures 
It goes without saying. You, you grow up in it, you, you uh, are raised in it, you adopt it, it's, it's part of who you are, and you don't even know because it just goes without saying. So last week, last week we looked at this same passage and we were looking at this idea that this is a historical gospel. And we talked about um, the, the way that, that history happened in the ancient world. And today... Today, what we want to do is we're, we're working through this series, and we're beginning this series on the gospel for skeptics. What we want to do today is we want to look at this, the idea that this is also an encultured gospel. It is an encultured gospel. It, it is a gospel that was written in a particular time, a particular place, to particular people, and it was in a particular culture. And so if we don't approach this and we don't say what goes without saying, what goes unnoticed, if we don't do that and we don't pay attention, then then what will happen in the weeks to come is we will probably make some unhelpful assumptions where we are taking our culture and we are putting it into the text and instead of understanding what's happening there, we we may end up with something different. And so we want to take a look at this. And we're going to look at, uh, today we're going to look at just two things, two things in this text, and and I kind of want to maybe try and open our eyes to this idea a little bit. Two things that go without saying, and then we're going to talk about why that matters to us today. So the the first thing that goes without saying, um, we can see it a little bit in verse 1, in as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. And then he goes on in verse 3, he says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. The thing that goes without saying in this part of the text is that based on our culture, what we would expect hearing this, one, it, would, it might seem a little strange that many have undertaken to, to write this down. Why doesn't just like the guy who's the expert on it do it? And then the other assumption that we might make is that when Luke says, um, I've decided to write this down and to give you an account, the assumption is that these are just single, solitary people who are off on their own, writing on their own, go sit in your study and, and start writing down what you're thinking, maybe reorganize it, and go from there. And, and we kind of um, unconsciously, we get this image of people sitting down and writing Scripture alone. Well, the first thing that goes without saying in the Gospel of Luke is that writing was a communal activity. Writing was something that would happen <coughs> all together. It's not like it is today where, where you have... You know, you could sit down, you could write a book on your computer, you could edit it yourself, you could upload it to Amazon, and then someone could get online and they could order it to their house and read it alone. And the whole time, you never have to talk to anybody, whether you're writing it, getting it, reading it, you could do that whole thing alone. That's not how it was. The, the process wasn't done all in isolation. In Jesus' day, as well as in Luke's People traveled in groups, people lived in groups, people learned in groups, 
and people wrote in groups. This idea of doing everything in life together, it's very foreign to us, isn't it? How many of you like your alone time? And, and, And then some of us like more alone time. Like, give me alone time on top of the alone time, and then maybe like, you know, a few minutes a day, I'll go out and be among the people. Well, if you like your alone time, you would not uh, probably like Jesus' culture. You can get an idea of it when you look at Indonesian culture. Um, A guy named Randy Richards was was a missionary in Indonesia, and this is what he wrote. He wrote, as a missionary, I slept late, often not arising until 6 a.m. when I staggered out of the bedroom. I commonly found an Indonesian pastor sitting politely in my living room. How many of you would like that? Awaiting the lazy missionary. While bedrooms were for family, the rest of the house was viewed much more like we would view a college dorm lobby. People walked in and out of my house. Many times I came home for lunch to find some stranger helping out in the kitchen or washing clothes on my back porch. So how would you like that? You, you walk out, there's someone in your living room, and then you look around and there's someone washing their clothes on your back porch. Early in my career, I would ask, who are you? <coughs> the person would stop, go out back and bathe, change clothes, and then sit in my living room to explain. After tea, and a lot of what seemed to me to be beating around the bush, he or she would explain what problem had brought them to the city. Their problem was now my problem. After all, I did ask who they were. And so in this culture, everybody knew what everybody was doing. I could stop a student on campus and ask what my wife was cooking for lunch, and they would know, and they would likely add that she had paid too much for the chicken. There's a lot of overlap in Jesus' culture and the culture that I just read to you about. There's a whole lot of overlap there. And so as we look at this and we see, many have undertaken to compile a narrative. And then later in verse 3, and we see that Luke says, it seemed good to me also to compile a narrative. Don't be thinking... Don't be thinking that that here are isolated individuals kind of coming up with stuff all their own. Why would many compile a narrative? Because everyone was there. They were all there. They were always around. They saw what happened. There weren't really secrets in that culture. Try keeping a secret when people are just hanging out in your living room. Luke, writing the gospel, would have been writing much of this, if not all of it, in a group setting. Usually the way writing would happen is is whoever was the, the author would dictate it, and here are people sitting around listening, they would dictate what they wanted to write, and then there would be a scribe who would be sitting there writing it down for them. And so it was a group activity, and as we talked about last week, there, there's a lot of confidence that we can gain from that, because like imagine you're at a family reunion and you start telling like the story that you tell every year at a family reunion, what's going to happen if you get something wrong? 
everybody's going to tell you, no, 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 that's not how it happened. Don't write that down, right? History, the Gospels, the Epistles, all of these things, they would have been written in a community setting, and that leads to a reliable Gospel. You couldn't slip things in without people knowing. You couldn't, you couldn't just kind of add something in there without everybody knowing about it and someone speaking up and calling it out. So that's the first thing that goes without saying, is that writing was a communal activity. It wasn't this single, you know, kind of isolated thing like, like we might think of. The second thing that I want to point out, the second thing that goes without saying, um, we, we see it in verse 3. He says, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. What did you hear? What came into your mind when you, when you hear that phrase, to write an orderly account? Write an orderly account. I bet if we sat down and we took the time... I bet 90-something percent of us, when you hear an orderly account, you are assuming chronological. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, you know, when I, when I used to come home from school and I'd, I'd get in, my mom would say, how was your day? I'd say it was good. And then she'd say, what happened? Start at the beginning, then go to the next thing, then go to the next thing, then go to the next thing. That's how we, as, as Westerners, Um, That is how we are often trained to think. But what goes without saying (coughs) is that in these times, chronology is less important than the message. I'm not saying it's not important, but it is less important than the message you're trying to communicate. And so one of the claims that people often have against the truthfulness of Scripture is they look and they say, well, there are different timelines to certain things in the Gospels. So for instance, did Jesus heal the centurion's servant before or after the disciples picked grain on the Sabbath? Go read it in Matthew, then go read it in Luke, and you're going to have a question. Which one is it? The order is different. When did Jesus clear out the temple? Was it before or after the thing that we call his triumphal entry? Again, Matthew and Luke seem to disagree. Well, Luke is not saying, by an orderly account, he's not saying, I'm writing everything chronologically. He would say he's putting it in the right order, though. He would say he's putting it in the right order, because even though somehow we tend to think that the best history starts with A and ends with, with B, and it goes in a chronological order with no variation, um, I think what Luke would probably say is, number one, that's boring. And number two, that's not how we do history. You see, again, I just want to harp on this a little more. In our culture, we tend to recount things chronologically. And I like the way this one person put it. They said, Western stories have a beginning, a middle, and an end. This sequence is important. When you tell a story all out of sequence, the story quits making sense. Or so Westerners think. Not so elsewhere. In the non-Western world, stories often circulate around the event until it coalesces. Therefore, orderliness, but not the chronological sequence, is important. 
When we find the same story with a different sequence, such as the three temptations of Jesus in Matthew and in Luke, it unsettles us. But since Luke uses references to the temple as an organizing theme in his gospel, for example, the correct sequence for Luke is the one that ends where Jesus stood on the pinnacle of the temple and was urged to jump. But Matthew has every major event in the life of Jesus occur on a mountain. So for Matthew, the correct sequence is the one that has the crescendo event on a mountain where Jesus is taken to a high mountain to view the world's kingdoms. The chronological sequence simply didn't matter to them in the same way it matters to us. You see, the the chronology of certain events is there to serve the point that they're trying to emphasize. And when you go, and we're going to see this as we go throughout Luke, what is the point that he's trying to emphasize? He's trying to emphasize some things that are a little bit different than the other gospel writers. He's going to emphasize the offer of salvation, the Holy Spirit. He's going to emphasize the cross in a particular way. Luke actually emphasizes individual people and women and babies and children and the poor. Luke, he he emphasizes music, which all you guys like that. Luke is where we get the Magnificat, the Benedictus, the Nunc Dimittis. Am I saying that right? How do you say that? Close enough? Close enough. The Gloria. There's incredible music that we see in Luke. The verb rejoice is found in Luke more than any other book in the New Testament. And so to do this, to emphasize these things, sometimes what Luke is going to do is he's going to work around the emphasis instead of the chronology. Now, I know this probably sounds a little strange, but have you ever seen a movie where it starts in this like crazy action scene or or some kind of a moment, and then you hear the record scratch? You're probably wondering how we got here, right? They're not going by chronology because then the movie jumps all the way back to something else because they want to emphasize something that's happening here. So if we think about it, we're at least a little bit familiar with this, but that is the second thing that goes unspoken. Now, I hope by now you've kind of gotten this idea that that it's a different culture, but we can understand it. We can see what's going on. But in order to do that, we have to think about the three different ways that we might approach reading the text. There are three different ways that you can approach reading this text, and two of them actually do the same thing, but from different angles. The first way you might approach the text is the religious way. The religious way, you look at the text and you say, I'm going to find the laws that I have to follow in order to be saved. You can think about the rich young ruler that comes to Jesus and says, "Um, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Or you can think about the man that says, you know, uh, um, Jesus says, you know, love your neighbor. And it says, seeking to justify himself. He said, well, who is my neighbor? Right? That's the religious approach. It is, what do I have to do in order to get what I want? Because I think if I can just do enough, I can get there. And so you approach the text with that in mind. Another way you can approach the text, which is really the same thing, but you're coming at it from a different angle, and we could call it an anti-religious approach. And, And what you do there is you begin by saying, because this isn't true, I don't have to listen. 
I, I can find the flaws and I can make up my own laws and my own way. Now, both of these approaches are going to miss the point because instead of actually being a fair or objective approach, what these are actually doing is they're taking their culture and imposing it on the text. So if you are approaching it with that religious approach, what you're going to do is you're going to begin to read the Gospels and you're going to say, well, this law is important, um, but these laws aren't. And what you're actually doing in that circumstance is you're taking your own cultural values of what matters and you are putting that onto the text so that now I can say, well, I I can keep that law, but I don't need that one because my culture doesn't value this thing. The anti-religious approach does it kind of in in the opposite way. I don't need this law because I can make my own law. And then instead of being open-minded, what what you're actually doing is you are closing your mind to other possibilities because, again, you are imposing your culture's values of, of what matters onto the text in order to disregard. But there is a third way. <clears throat> there is a third way. The first two are seeking to justify myself. I will approach it this way. The third way is seeking to be justified. Seeking mercy. Seeking Jesus. I want to know what his culture is. I want to know what his culture was. I want to know about this time and this place and the things that are different. Why? So I can know him better. I want to know who he is. I want to know what he taught. I want to know what he did. I want to know, is he good? I want to know, does he care? And what you will find if you take this approach is you will find in Jesus, you will find actually a sharp rejection of that religious approach and religious people who teach that you can earn God's love. You will also find a firm insistence that everyone has problems that we can't ignore and that just making up your own law doesn't doesn't make them go away. And the third thing you will find is a radical love for you with all of your flaws, mistakes, and all of your mess. So as we approach this gospel and as we are about to get into a lot of the stories, how will you approach the text? How will you approach the text? Will you approach this looking for laws to be followed? Will you approach this saying, "Ah, you know, I I don't need to follow those laws. I'll make my own. Or will you approach this with the gospel in mind? Will you approach this and say, this book holds the truth about a God who knows me better than I know myself, but who loves me at my most unlovable? This is the gospel that's about someone who willingly fulfilled the law when we couldn't so that we can be free from guilt and shame and oppression and darkness, not just in this life, but in the life to come. How will you approach this gospel? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for for communicating in a particular time and place. And we thank you that we can understand the words that have been passed down. Lord, we thank you for the men and women that you inspired to to write and protect and, and pass on this book. 
Most of all, we thank you for Jesus. Lord, who's done what we couldn't do. Lived the life that we couldn't live and died the death that we should have died. Lord, help us as we approach this gospel. Help us to look to him. Not to try and get facts to, to put in our arsenal and, and not to, to feel bad about ourselves or make ourselves feel better or any of these things. Lord, help us as we go through this book. Help us to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Holy Spirit, would you be at work in our hearts, we pray. Make us look more like Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand as we continue in worship? <laughs>